0: Um, for several Christmases, uh, my son Jeff and his wife Chelsea, who live in Washington, D.C., come down and spend a couple of weeks in Texas. Chelsea flies down with the two preschoolers, and Jeff drives down. He takes, a two day, he takes two days to drive down from D.C. all the way down to Texas, and he loads the car up with all their Christmas presents, with thousands of pounds of equipment that you need if you have preschoolers. You just, they, they just take a lot. And a ginormous but gentle dog, Belle. He makes that trip down, makes it down in two days. The last two years, I have uh, driven back with him because I like, I like you know, road tripping like that. And uh, we do the two-day two, trip, two day road trip just to keep he and Bell company. And on our trip, uh, two years ago when we first went, we, we had such a good time driving across the country. It's just such a beautiful country. And we were driving across. Uh, we listened to a bunch of podcasts. We stopped in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I showed him where my grandparents lived and where I used to play football in their yard with my brother. And I showed him the, the zoo on Hardy Street and just... We we went on. We continued on. We listened to podcasts that evening as we were traveling through. This is two years ago, as we were driving through the northern corner of Alabama. We were listening to the Alabama Georgia uh, national championship game, and Bama was ahead while we were in the corner of Alabama. Right after we crossed the border into Georgia, Georgia went ahead and stayed and won. It was kind of cool. I thought this is neat. I got to tell this sometime. So I just did. Anyway, we continued on, and um, you know, on that two day trip, and we we just talked about all kinds of stuff. Nothing really serious. Until we got into northern Virginia. We had just a couple of hours left on our trip. It was getting late at night. I was going to fly out the next morning. We'd go straight to bed when we got there. And Jeff had something on his mind he wanted to talk about. It was a pretty deep subject. We had this this heavy but rich conversation. And just in that, that conversation, we just kind of pulled together. Jeff knew his time was short, and he didn't want to lose that opportunity to have that conversation. He wanted to talk about what was most important to him the last couple hours of the trip. And we're like that. When we're about to leave to go somewhere, the last things that we say are usually those things that are most important to us. And as we've been following Jesus through the book of John uh, this year, as we've gotten into chapter 13 and forward, we're seeing that Jesus used the last couple of hours that he had with his disciples before he was arrested and then crucified the next day to talk to them about what was most important and we see that, that he, he summarized all the things that he had, talked, he had taught them during the three years they had together and during his public ministry in Israel. He warned them of the persecution they would face because they were following his name. And then he also comforted them with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who would come and take, take up residence in them and fill them with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would guide them through the good times and bad. And, and the Holy Spirit would, would be, it would be his Spirit in them that would continue on after he left and returned to heaven. He wrapped up his final lesson with these words. Jesus said to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. I want you to think about that phrase, the hour has come. If you've been with us from the start, starting early last year when we began this this journey with Jesus through the book of John, you remember that before Jesus performed his first miracle, when he first came on the public scene, his mother, Mary, they were at a wedding. They'd run out of wine. And she told the people that were in charge of that, she goes, do whatever he says. And he looked at her and said, my hour has not yet come. But yet he went ahead and turned water to wine and kept the party going. Then later, as he began to teach more significantly to people, and people began to realize this is, this is different. This isn't just same old, same old religion. He is calling us to a radical new way to live. They began to hate him. And on a couple of occasions, they tried to kill Jesus. And Jesus just ghosted them, literally. I mean, they're trying to kill Jesus, and he just disappears. He's gone. And it said, John said, it's because his hour had not yet come. Now, as we've gotten into chapters 13 through 17, the last hours of Jesus' life, or the week before, when, they first, when he came into Jerusalem with his disciples for the last time, he indicated his hour was coming soon. And now tonight, after he's finished talking to them, he says, the hour has now come. But what was he talking about? What did he mean by the hour has now come? Well, if you have your Bible, open it to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you're looking for it in your Bible and you're not familiar with your Bible yet, it's in the New Testament, so it's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Go there. The first four books are four Gospels. We call them Gospel, which means good news. They're four biographies of Jesus, his life, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his commission to us to go into all the world and make disciples. It's the fourth of those four Gospels, John. Go to chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the words on the screen. We'd also love to give you one. You can pick up an English or Spanish translation in the foyer at the Welcome Center on your way out. So Jesus wrapped up this, as you're looking for John chapter 17, Jesus wrapped up this last evening with his disciples by praying first for himself, then he prayed for them, the 11 that were still with him. Judas had already left to go and betray him. And then finally he prayed for us, which is fascinating. He knew it was, it was time to demonstrate the ultimate act of love for us. He was ready to die for our sins on a cross. The hour had come. That was the hour that he had planned for his entire life here on earth. And Jesus began to pray. We're going to start with the first prayer. First of all, Jesus prayed for his glory. He had done everything God sent him to do. He probably did not visit every town and speak in every synagogue in Israel. He didn't heal every sick person. He didn't address every social ill or political problem. He addressed very few of them. He talked about men's hearts, women's hearts, and how we ought to live and how we ought to teach one another. And in that, he did everything that the Father sent him to do. John 17, 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him. You have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. With his enemies on the way to arrest him, with death, staring him down. He was confident he had done all things that he had been entrusted to do. He'd done all the right things. So next, he turned to his disciples. He prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for, his, for their protection and unity. But I want you to notice what kind of protection he prayed for here, okay? He expressed confidence in them as he prayed for them. He, he was praying to the Father, but he was clearly He was praying out loud, and he was clearly intending for his disciples to hear what he prayed. He wanted them to listen to him and be encouraged by his prayer. And so as he's talking to to God about the time coming for his hour coming, he begins to pray for them, and his prayer for them started in the second half of verse 11. He said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. The name that would bring persecution on every one of them that would cost 10 of those 11 their lives and would send John, the writer of this book, into exile for his last years of life. That name was also the name that would protect them as well. Both their trouble and their unity would be found in their identification with the name of Jesus. Here's something really important I want you to understand. Jesus was not praying that they would be safe from persecution. He told them they were going to be persecuted. He wasn't praying that they would never be harmed. He knew they would be. He was asking God to protect their unity. Look down to verse 15. Jesus said, my prayer is not to to God. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I want you to think back to the Lord's Prayer. When they asked Jesus early in the ministry, they said, teach us how to pray. We notice you pray. It's the only thing they ever ask him to teach him. It's the only thing they ever ask him to teach them. Think about the words he said for them to pray. He said, pray, deliver us from evil. Some translations say, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus did not teach us to pray, deliver us from harm. He didn't ask the Father, please remove us from a world that doesn't like us, that doesn't treat us fairly. He didn't pray like that for them. He asked God to protect their unity that they would be one so that they would reflect the unity that he, Jesus, had with the Father and with the Spirit. I think this is a strong indication that the greatest danger they face, their greatest temptation, would be division and disunity. That's what he was praying for them to be protected from. Satan is the deceiver, the accuser, and he likes to divide people. He knew that if they did not work together, after he returned to heaven, the message of the gospel would never go beyond Jerusalem. You know, the same is true for us. I believe the greatest danger facing the church in America is not losing our freedom, not losing our religious freedom. Now, let me note. I want you to notice something about what's going on in the country. If you pay attention to the news, you see that Christians, especially Christians, but not just Christians, Religious people's freedom of religion is being attacked and challenged all over, especially in the universities. But here's something important. Every time it's challenged and taken to court, the Supreme Court in overwhelming majorities, both sides, left and right, continues to affirm religious freedom in this country. Our religious freedom in this country and freedom of expression has never been more secure. It's never been more challenged, but it's never been more secure. That is not our problem that we need to be concerned about, folks. Our greatest problem is not losing our freedom of religious expression, but rather our greatest problem is losing our unity. And I'm not just talking about our unity in Brad's point. I'm talking about our unity with other Christ followers around the country. That is our greatest, I believe, our greatest danger right now. Our unity is in much greater peril than our freedoms. Our freedoms, may may, we, we may lose those someday in a generation or two, but that's not the problem right now. So after praying for his disciples' unity, This is where I want to spend more time on. Jesus prayed for our unity. He prayed for us. Notice how many times Jesus says the words one and unity in his prayer. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, my prayer is, he's praying to God, my prayer is not for them alone. Talking about his 11 disciples remaining. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Folks, that's us. We have believed in Jesus through the message of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their gospels, and the other Christ followers who have passed this gospel down to us across the world and throughout our generations to now. He is praying for us. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This message is mostly for the church, for those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus Christ. But those of you who may be interested in checking out the faith, I want you to notice that God's desire is for us to love one another so that we can love you. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you. It's so important for you to know Jesus loves you, each and every one of you. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to have a lot of other things I'll talk about in a moment. Chapters 13 through 17 have been called the upper room discourses because they began in this upper room where they, had, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And about halfway through that, after they celebrated the Lord's Supper and Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and implored them to love one another and serve one another. At some point, they left that room, I'm not sure where they went, before they went on to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was betrayed and prayed his last prayer. But Jesus, in this, if you look over these five chapters, 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourses, you will see that the theme of unity flows throughout them. What was most important to Jesus before he went and gave his life up for us with his followers? Love and unity. Folks, I hope it's become clear to you during the past several weeks that we followers of Jesus Christ, we must be unified if what we say and do is going to have any value. So where can we find unity? That's what I want to talk about. Where can we find unity, okay? Listen, we discover unity. This is where it begins, in the truth of God's Word. The Bible is God's Word. It's not just any old book. It is living and active. And we find unity in God's truth. If you'll notice, Jesus mentioned this several times in his prayer. In verse 6, he said, I revealed you, the Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. What word did they have? They had Jesus' words, all he taught them, and they had the Old Testament of what we call the Old Testament of the Bible. Verse 8, he said, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. Verse 14, he said, I have given them your word. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Folks, we discover unity in the truth of God's word. I want to show you a picture and give you an illustration of how this works. In the sport of rowing, in the the sport of rowing, unity is key. Each oar must enter and exit the water at precisely the same time for the boat to maintain its speed, okay? The way the rowers stay in sync is by listening to a person called the coxswain. The coxswain doesn't row. She sits in the back of the boat. She's the only one facing forward and she calls out the strokes. The coxswain calls out, so everyone facing forward must listen to the coxswain's command and respond. When that happens, when they are all in unity, they fly across the water. Unity doesn't come from everyone rowing their hardest. Although I'm sure they do that, that's not where their unity comes from. Unity comes from everyone submitting to a single voice, the voice of the coxswain. Now, as the, as the rowers find unity in the voice of the coxswain, folks, we find unity in Jesus Christ. That's the only place we can find absolute unity Let us submit to a single voice, the voice of Jesus. That's who we follow. Listen, we don't search for unity anywhere else. We don't search for unity in the schools we send our children to, whether it's homeschool, public school, private school. They're all good. We don't find our unity in that. We don't find our unity in the charities or ministries we support hope some of you will, will become volunteers at the food basket, but others of you are going to feel led to different ministries, maybe Texas Port Ministry, Praise Help Center, or, or the or Food Pantry, or whatever, Many a number of ministries. We don't have to be unified in that we think this is the only one or this is the best one. We won't find unity in that. We certainly won't find unity in the political parties we support, as important as that is. But we're not going to find unity there. It's not going to happen. And if we have to unify around that, we will take our eyes off of Jesus. We are not going to find unity in the holidays that we observe or don't observe, the music we listen to, or even the clothes we wear. That's not where we find our unity. We discover unity in Jesus and in his word. That's where it begins. This is so essential because genuine unity never comes when truth is discarded just because we fear offending the current cultural norms. There are once great denominations in our country, that helped spread the gospel from shore to shore, that are now dying, not just declining, they are dying. There are some great denominations that will not even be around by the middle of this century, perhaps. And they, they strayed away from the truth of God's word and became more sensitive to cultural norms, and so they changed with culture instead of staying with the word of God. The irony is that the churches, that those great denominations inspired and started all over South America and Asia and Africa are growing strong. They're, they're just exploding in growth around the world because they have not abandoned the truth of God's word. They trust it and they follow it and they lead the way. You know, you, you've seen and probably heard about, you know, that, that is becoming less and less of a Christian nation. I don't know that we've ever been a Christian nation. We've certainly been influenced and in all of our laws, constitutions, so many things are influenced by God and the Bible, but... Even as churches decline here and denominations uh, fall apart in this country, Christianity is growing in the world. It is growing by leaps and bounds everywhere except in what we would call the West. That would be the United States, Canada, and Europe. As a matter of fact, Europe is the darkest continent spiritually on the planet. 1% or less of the people in Europe are Christian. That's not that way. Sub-Saharan Africa is probably 50% Christian. We used to send missionaries around the world. Now they're sending missionaries here and in Europe. Praise God, they are. Listen, we begin our unity by trusting in the truth of God's word. That's where we discover it. God's word is our starting point. Next, we develop our unity as we love one another in our love for each other. Jesus began their last evening together with a new command, going back to chapter 13 where the upper room discourses begin. In John chapter 13, verses 30, 34, in verse 34, Jesus said, a new command I give you. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's how he began the evening before the Lord's Supper, and then he ended the evening. Some of the last words of his prayer were about love. John chapter 17, verse 23, talking to the Father, he said, I in them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's the message. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ right now, I hope you get that Jesus loves you and he sent us here to show you that love. Listen, we develop unity when we love each other as Jesus loved us. That's that's how we come together. That's the first step built on the truth of God's word. We, we develop that love, we develop that unity by loving one another. The only way to draw closer to one another is to draw closer to Jesus Christ. And the closer we draw to Jesus Christ, the more we will love one another. The more we feel ourselves a part of Jesus' family, the more we're going to love the members in our family. The Apostle Paul encouraged this in a letter he wrote to one of the churches he planted. He told them, he said, and this is some of his last words in that letter, he said, Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I have seen this happen over and over again through the years, especially in our small groups. Someone expresses a deep hurt or need, and I've watched a small group just kind of stop, and everyone begins to come around them and pray for them, and then say, how can we help you? Several so years ago, we had a young, young man uh, who he was a student ministry volunteer, had little kids, and he broke his ankle on a student, uh, student trip. Uh, he, he was volunteering there on that trip. He broke his ankle. He was a welder. He wasn't able to go to work for about two months. That means no money. And he, he, that was more than half of their income was, was his. And, and they didn't know what they were going to do. Their small group rallied around them. They paid at least one of their house notes. They might have paid more than one. And they brought groceries to them throughout those, couple of month, throughout those two months period uh, when he couldn't go back to work. That's how we love one another. As Jesus loved us, we look for ways. We see a need and we meet a need. We love each other. As we serve one another, we will grow in our love for one another. So we develop our unity and love for each other. Then we deploy our unity. What is that unity for? We deploy our unity in the mission of the gospel. That's ultimately what our unity is for. Think back to Jesus' command for us to love each other. In John 13, 34, he gave the reason in verse 35. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the only way Jesus said people could identify who we are by how we love each other. How are we doing, church? How are we doing? And again, not just Brad's point. How are we doing loving our brothers and sisters in other Christian churches and denominations here? This is how the world will know that that, that Jesus is real by the fact that we can love one another when the whole country is falling apart in disunity and fighting with one another. We can be in We can be unified in our love for each other so that the mission goes forth. Before people are willing to take a step of faith, they want to see if this love of Jesus stuff is really real in our lives. And if it is, they're drawn to it. They want to have what we have. That's the idea. Unity down. Now, listen, unity doesn't mean uniformity, okay? You don't have to be a twin to be a brother or sister. Think about it. Brothers and sisters from the same family can be very different. My sister is quiet, soft-spoken. Um, she's real sweet. Nothing like me and my brother. You know, we're both loud and, you know, and, and we've just done things that probably aren't great, you know, to other people. Yeah, you know, it's like she's probably never harmed a person in her life, and yet we're, we're brothers and sisters. We're part of the same family. We love each other. We can be very different and still have unity, still be brothers and sisters in Christ. When we focus on the big picture of God's mission, we can work together amidst all kinds of of diversity. Our mission here, folks, this is our mission. This is ultimately why Jesus wants us to be unified and why he prays for protection against division and disunity for us. Our mission is to help others find joy in Jesus. There is great joy in knowing Jesus Christ. Joy is different than just happiness. Happiness is temporary. We talked about that in our small groups a couple of weeks ago. Jesus wants us to have joy in our lives. Listen, in the middle of his prayer here in John 17, he mentions it. He says to the Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. Even in their trouble, they would still have a full measure of joy within them. If you've been with us on this journey with Jesus through the book of John, remember when Jesus described himself, we went through this late last year, When he described himself as the good shepherd who loves his sheep, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, he said the thief, and he's referring to Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants us to have a full, meaningful life with purpose and aim. He wants us to have joy that lasts even when our circumstances are awful. Even when we're sick, maybe when we get a, a bad diagnosis that we're not gonna be in this world much longer, we can still have that joy of the Lord in us. Jesus still gives us this full life. We live in a crazy, divided world where it just seems like people just want to fight. I know we just came out of a pandemic, it made us all mad. We were. Everybody, I was mad, you were mad. Come on, let's admit it. But we've got to get over that. We've got to have unity. Students take sides in an argument that's not even their own and and just line up on either side. Actually, students, adults do that too, okay? We just divide up over things that that aren't important. Families divide over politics. That is so sad. Things that really we have no say over for the most part, and we divide over that. Civic clubs, booster organizations, they divide over, over power struggles, on who gets to make the decision on how we spend this money or make this next, do this next year. And churches divide over secondary doctrines that can be very important but not enough to break our unity? What if we decide to unify instead of fighting? What if we look for what we have in common instead of what's different about us? What if we believe Jesus really is the hope of the world and the world's greatest problem is being lost and not knowing the truth of Jesus Christ? What if we, what if we unite We we unite around the truth of God's word. We grow in love for one another and look for ways to serve each other rather than ways to argue or debate with one another. And then we unify around the mission of making Jesus known to a world that so desperately needs him. That world is your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students, your family. My family, my friends, my neighbors. What if we unite for that? If we can unite around the love of Jesus Christ for each other, then they will know us by our love. Let me pray for that end. God, we don't naturally come together and unify over a lot of things, especially not in our culture today. We know it's been this crazy before. This is just our experience, our generations. Walk through the troubles of disunity. God, help us as people of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to unify around you. Help us to have a love for each other that just rolls off of that onto other people. Lord, help us to be so unified in caring about you and bringing glory to you, loving you, loving one another in our Christian family, Lord, that it just draws people to you. God, help us to love one another and help others to know us by our love and the desire to find what we have and enter into the joy and fullness that you want for us. I ask that prayer in the strong name of your son, Jesus.